Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where we have unrehearsed conversations with our guests about legal news, events, topics, and other stories that we think you're going to find interesting. I'm your host today, Trisha Rich of Holland and Knight, and co-hosting the podcast with me today is Maggie Mendenhall-Casey, a lawyer with the city of Chicago. Maggie, thank you for joining us today. I'm excited to chat, Trish. Excellent. And joining me and Maggie today is author, historian, podcaster, and man about Chicago, Adam Selzer. Adam began his writing career writing for young adults, where he earned a number of industry accolades. A few years into his career, though, he started focusing on history and specifically Chicago history. Now he's the author of a number of books related to history and to Chicago and to Chicago history, including The Smart Alex Guide to American History, Your Neighborhood Gives Me the Creeps, The Definitive Story of H.H. H. Holmes, Mysterious Chicago, which I'm currently reading, and most recently published just last month a book about Graceland Cemetery. He's also a podcaster at Mysterious Chicago. You can get that wherever you download your podcasts. And anything I missed, Adam, welcome to the pod. There's a book recently called Murder Maps that came out. It's a coffee table book full of really gruesome photos. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. So uh, we should everybody should go out and buy that right now. Well, for but, very uh, strange coffee tables. <laughs> Adam, thanks for joining us. So, you know, as I'm sure you're a listener of our podcast, and I, by the way, listen to your podcast. So uh, I think you probably know we normally have legal guests on, you know, lawyers talking about their cases and such, but it's October and we wanted to do something a little bit different. So thank you for coming on and talking to us about your work. Oh, glad to be here. And I, I ended up in the legal archives and the law libraries pretty regularly just doing research. And I love the legal archives. It's like something out of Charles Dickens in there. They bring you these crumbling piles of Victorian paperwork that are like pinned together because they're before paper clips. That's that's awesome. I don't know that our, our at least our legal listeners have the same affection for legal research, but I'm glad <laughs> to hear a plug for it. And I have to break the fourth wall a little bit and say that Adam is joining us live from a cemetery, live in color. I have to ask, <laughs> yep. which cemetery are you at, Adam? Uh, right now, I am in St. Adelbert Cemetery in Niles. Every Friday, I do a thing on my live stream called Find a Grave Friday, where I go to a cemetery where we know a particular person is buried, but I don't look up what the grave looks like or where exactly it is. Uh, my viewers figure it out, and then we play hot and cold until I find it. Oh, that's, so that's what I'm doing immediately after the podcast. We're gonna <laughs> <laughs> busy man, busy man. <laughs> so, Adam, let's start by talking about speaking of courthouses and records and stuff. Let's start by talking about one of the stories I, I read in, in one of your books. And I heard you talk about on your podcast, the old Cook County Jail Gallows and the purported ghosts that have uh, hung around. Tell us about that. All right. Well, the old Cook County Jail was a couple of buildings in Illinois and Dearborn. It, they were uh, back behind the courthouse that is still standing there on Hubbard. It's all offices and condos or something now. Uh, the Cook County Jail itself was torn down a long time ago. But from about 1873 up until 1927, when the uh, state switched to the electric chair, just about 100 men were hanged by the neck until they were dead there. Uh, you can uh, triangulate. There's a fire station there now about where the third garage is, was where the gallows would have been set up. Uh, sometimes the night before, they would set them up in the alley back behind to hang sandbags to get the spring out of the rope. And even in the 1800s, there was already stories about the place being haunted, especially the cell where prisoners would spend their last nights before the execution. 
There was also two wings of the jail. By the end of it, there was the new wing and the old wing. And even the warden tried to keep from putting anybody into the old wing because it was so spooky there. People got really freaked out. Yeah, I used to live near that fire station. So (laughs) it's right by the old Rainforest Cafe. I think that's gone now, too. Yeah, the Rainforest Cafe scares me a lot more. Yeah, also (laughs) a ghost, right? (laughs) Right. Adam, I have to say, walking in that area, not even knowing that it was a former jail where people were hung, it it feels a little bit off, a little bit (laughs) creepy when you're walking in that area. Um, All all the dude bros make it. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps that's the creepy part of it. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the story of uh, Tommy O'Connor and why he's the reason that uh, there were gallows kept in uh, Illinois until 1977. All right. Terrible Tommy O'Connor was a guy who'd been involved in a few different murders between about 1919 and 1921. He kept getting away. Uh, They would like catch him on a train in Wisconsin and bring him back. And then he would manage to beat the rap or the witnesses would all mysteriously disappear or change their minds. Finally, they caught him. They convicted him. They sentenced him to be hanged. Then in 1921, he escaped from jail and they never found him. Now, his sentence said he must be hanged by the neck until he was dead. So if they ever caught him, even years after they switched to the chair, the gallows were still in storage or at least a few boards of them. Uh, Because if they ever found terrible Kami, they were going to have to hang him. I think by the 1970s, uh, there were articles about this saying, you know, obviously, if they catch him, they're not really going to hang him, are they? They'll come up with some kind of loophole to get out of it. So eventually the judge ruled that he must be dead by now and had them get rid of the gallows. Well, thanks for sharing that, that with us. He's a particular individual that uh, required those gals to be kept around for what, over 50 years about after yeah, Higgins over made Over 50 elite? years after he disappeared, up until the late 1970s. That's insane. That's really interesting. Um, speaking of gallows, can you tell us about the story of the guy that stole the gallows? I know I'm going a little further oh, that was, south. That, that's, that's, that's a little <laughs> bit earlier. Yeah, it was, yeah, there was a guy named George W. Green in 1854, He murdered his wife in the middle of a cholera epidemic. He figured, well, everybody will just assume she died of cholera. Didn't stop to think that a doctor might dig the body back up and find traces of strychnine, which he did. But but after it happened, there was a whole true crime book about him, The Life of George W. Green, the Chicago banker who murdered his wife. And in it, they claimed that back in 1840, when we had the first official execution in Chicago, it was a guy named John Stone was hanged out about where the dunes are. But what was dunes at the time, if you like, 26th street now but the next day apparently george green who was a furniture maker stole the gallows to make into furniture that's that's uh, one of the stories that came up in the book even at the time they said they confirmed it by three different sources but they didn't seem to quite believe it so do you think it's possible there's furniture still floating around chicago that's made well, from- see, well <laughs> my guess is if there was it probably would have burned up in the great chicago fire <laughs> Please, just let's like hope every that trans- burn in well, a fire. he eventually hangs himself in jail. And they took a there was a daguerreotype, a photograph taken of his body that you could buy copies of for a while. I've only ever seen a drawing of the photograph that was published in that book. I haven't seen an actual copy of it. They, I guess, they all might have burned up in the Great Chicago Fire. And, and there's a a copy of the drawing of the photograph in your one of your books, right? I think I've seen right. it I there. Think, I think I did put it in something. Yeah. One of the things that I read in in researching this episode is there are presumably a lot of ghosts wandering around River North as a result of these hangings that were happening at the old courthouse. What's a good ghost story from that uh, historical event? 
Well, one that they particularly talked about haunting the place was a guy named Johan Hawk, who is one of my favorite people to talk about. Johan Hawk was one of our antique serial killers. He looked like the guy on the Pringles can, uh, talked <laughs> like a German character on The Simpsons. When they asked him how come he buried so many wives, he was like, oh, other women for Johan go crazy, yeah? Um, he had married probably at least a dozen women. They suspected more than 50 and seems to have killed quite a number of them, too. Arsenic was his weapon of choice. Uh, he was hanged after going back and forth and back and forth in the legal system for a while. And they specifically pinpointed him as one of the guys who was haunting what they called the death chamber in the years after. Later on, there were stories about how he had cursed everybody from the gallows, though if that happened at the time, nobody wrote it down in all the newspaper articles the next day which is known to happen. There were also people who were hanged, like tied to chairs because they couldn't keep them standing up. And they were sometimes said to be haunting the place too. Or a guy by the name of George Painter, where the rope broke and he ended up landing on his head. And they thought he was already dead from the fall, but the sentence said they hanged to hang him by the neck until he was dead. So they had to just like slide him back down the trap door and let him dangle there for a minute just to be on the safe side. And also there was somebody else later confessed to the crime for which he was hanged. So I would haunt it if I were him anyway, even if he even yeah. if he actually did do it. Yeah. I. Um, so how long did we use hanging as a method of execution in Chicago? Oh, uh, the first was in 1840. They switched to the chair at about 27 or so. And then I assume at some point we went from electric chairs to lethal injections. Somewhere up there. I don't know. I don't have. Yeah. No and then on that. I don't I don't follow the more modern. Stuff yeah, like I was going to well. say. I was going to say now and now, of course, we don't do any, but um, right. Well, having having read through enough of the old uh, I've read through pretty much every hanging story here. They were so inconsistent about who would get the death penalty. And so many people were convicted on really, really fishy evidence. What do you mean? Well, there were a lot of people who had confessions tortured out of them, people who were told to sign this paper that was they couldn't read, but they were told it was an alibi statement and it was really a confession people who had drugs pumped into them to get them to confess, a lot of people who were sentenced to be hanged just because they were present when a murder took place, but many other people who were not uh, sentenced under similar circumstances. It's just wildly inconsistent to read through. Adam, what are your methods for, for researching these ghosts and the hauntings? Because you're dealing with people who are long gone, witnesses that are long gone. How, right. how, how do you figure out these stories? I tried to get as many primary sources as I possibly can. Sometimes out in Springfield, you can get the trial transcripts. Not very often, but mm. sometimes. Uh, more often, especially in the 19th century cases, newspapers would cover the trials in really, really big detail. And especially the executions would get two pages above and below the fold. In the 20th century, it can actually be a little bit harder. They weren't quite as diligent about reporting. Newspaper articles got a lot shorter in the 20th century for the most part. Sometimes I can get things like prison records. Sometimes you can get stuff out of the legal archives. I just try to find as much data as I possibly can and as much good data as I can. Like an article from some Cincinnati newspaper about uh, its case in Chicago is probably not going to be that reliable. One of the things that was the most surprising to me in learning about all these historical um, killings and, and murders is just the amount of police work that was able to be done prior to some of the technology we have today. So prior to DNA, prior to all of the CSI stuff that people expect to see, police were still tracking down these murderers, uh, digging up people, figuring out that it was arsenic and not cholera. So right. <laughs> that was pretty interesting to me. <laughs> right. Now and then they could bring in an expert for that. 
the, the Chicago police were kind of notorious for not consulting experts back in the 1800s. Not until they, they eventually got better about this. But for the longest time, your job as a cop was to get a hunch and then just try to get a conviction based on that. I mean, that's really remarkable. Some of it can be really infuriating to read about now. That's just how, uh, you know, there wasn't any training to be a police officer back then. Uh, other than just like what you picked up on the job. There was no academy. There were no civil service exams or anything. I don't feel like it would be much of a stretch to speculate that maybe the death penalty was used, you know, randomly to target certain groups of individuals. Of course it was. And we can find any number of cases. There was one guy who was uh, convicted. He was pardoned at the last minute, but he was convicted as a serial killer. It's fairly obvious reading through the case now that it wasn't him. It was uh, one of the members of the family. Uh, one of the daughters was probably the one doing all of the killing. And the police, having already picked out this appropriately foreign fortune-telling guy, mm -hmm. went out of their way to ignore any evidence that it was her because they knew they could convict him a lot easier than her. Yeah, I, I suspect that that was commonplace back then. Right. You would find uh, cases with like there were the trunk murderers of the 1880s where the fact that they were Italian was much more of a big deal than any actual evidence against them. What is a trunk murderer? It was um, there was a guy who was murdered and mailed to Pittsburgh in a trunk. And they traced it back to these three Italian guys. They had a really hard time finding anybody who would represent them in court. One of them was represented by Kate Kane Rossi, who was like the only woman lawyer working in Chicago at the time. And there was a, just recently a book about the case that kind of established that really the evidence against them was not that strong. They just seemed appropriately foreign and easy enough to pin it on. Yeah, yeah. Was there a suspicion that there was uh, some organized crime involvement in this? Because the fact that you would mail the body to someone seems, I don't know, so personalized, meant to send a message. That would seem like it to me. It's in, I don't know if it was like a random address in Pittsburgh or what off the top of my head. That happened a couple of times. They would mail a body someplace just to try to get rid of it. Sometimes a river can suffice. <laughs> I, I would think we got, we got a lake right there. Right. <laughs> um, how did you get into this field, Adam? What's your background? I kind of fell into it. I was an English major. I started uh, writing young adult novels. I was able to parlay those book deals into getting a job as a tour guide. And it was with one of the ghost tour companies. I got suspicious that some of the stories they taught me to tell might not be 100% on the level. I mean, the ghost story part is one thing, but there was history stuff behind all of these. And I figured, you know, the smartphones were starting to come out. I was afraid people would fact check me in real time. <laughs> so if only to cover my own butt, I started uh, digging into the archives and making sure I had a source on everything that I was saying. And of course, I found some things that some of the stories were completely different. And I also found lots of other stories to tell. And it really gets addictive, this archival research. It's like the same kind of thing that's like hunting or fishing to some people, I suppose. So what do you think is a really good example of a story that a lot of people in Chicago believe is true, but actually is not true? Well, one example that plays into the legal archives is not particularly well known, I guess. But there was a guy in the 1910s who had his house legally declared haunted. And the way that this gets retold in books is it's always this guy, they get his name wrong and they say that he got $4,000 knocked off of the price of his house for tax purposes because it was so haunted, because he was uh, so terrified by all of the ghosts there. And they, they usually get his name and address wrong, which made it kind of hard to look up the actual figure. What I finally did find that it was a house down in like the back of the yards area or Pilsen 
uh, maybe not Pilsen. It's one of those neighborhoods you don't know whether to call it back of the yards or Pilsen or Bridgeport or what. But it was a guy who was a spiritualist medium by trade, but told the court, of course, there are no ghosts in my house. It's just uh, everybody thinks that there are. Ghosts are too dignified to hang around in houses. But he <laughs> said that, no, there was a murder here a few years ago. And now it's people are so convinced that it's haunted that I can't rent the place out. And they did knock about $115 off the price of his house. Uh, they decided for tax purposes. So legally, the house, as a matter of law, was haunted. But the way that it got reported, it always got rewritten based on articles that were about three levels of the game, a telephone away from the primary ones. I mean, whatever way you need to go to get a discount. <laughs> right, whatever I, you I, need to go to I'm, get your tax payment, your I'm in lower. for it. Yes, exactly. Um, speaking of, of myth busting, I'd love to hear your take on the Candyman myth about the murder that uh, or murders that occurred in Cabrini Green. When we spoke right. a bit earlier, I thought that it was based on truth. But in fact, you had to educate me and I'd love you no, to educate others. <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, it is entirely made up for the movie. In the movie, they talk about a murder that took place about where Cabrini Green is now years and years ago. And then now that the, well, at least a legend around Cabrini Green, that if you said his name in the mirror, he would appear and start uh, writing lines from Shakespeare on your wall for some reason. And over the course of the movies, they changed the backstory a lot. <laughs> when I first started doing the tours, they told me that was at least a real urban legend around Cabrini Green. But the guy who was driving the bus for me at the time grew up there. He said he'd never heard it until he started doing the tours. Wow. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> well, certainly, I've never, found, uh, I've never found a historical backstory to go back for it either. It was probably just straight invented. Well, I appreciate you educating me and others on that. Um, prior to speaking with you, I certainly thought it was based on somebody going from an abandoned apartment through the medicine cabinet into someone's occupied apartment in, in Cabrini Green. But that, that in could fact, very is well a myth. Too, but <laughs> whether, uh, whether the people who made the first Candyman would have been aware of it would have been a whole other thing. <laughs> okay, well, um, I think that is a great place to take our first break. Let's turn it over to our sponsors and we'll be right back. Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org. are back with Adam Selzer. Adam, thanks again for joining us today. So I think you're known for a lot of things, but if there's one thing I think you're very well known for, it's for being an expert on H.H. Holmes, which is probably one of the most well-known serial killers in the Midwest. And it's just an absolutely fascinating story. I'm told there's a movie about it someday coming. I've been told that since I moved to Chicago. Hulu, Hulu series now. <laughs> okay. I, I've been in Chicago now almost 17 years, and they've been talking about this movie going to be made ever mm -hmm. since I moved here. <laughs> the whole time. Yeah, I think it's going to hit. I think it's <laughs> going to hit. Dahmer is big now. I think it's your time, Adam. I, I hope so. But um, <laughs> I don't do these modern guys. <laughs> I get in too much trouble. So one thing that we've talked to you about is sort of this idea that Chicagoans have a misunderstanding of the history of H.H. H. Holmes. So let's just say I fell off a turnout truck, just arrived here from, uh, you know, Arkansas. <laughs> what do I need to know about H.H. H. Holmes? 
Uh, what you're going to hear about H.H. H. Holmes is that during the World's Fair, he built a giant hotel on 63rd Street that was full of hidden rooms, secret passages, everything you could possibly need to kill a person and everything you could need to get rid of the body. Uh, people like to toss around the number 200 people were traced to the place that had disappeared. And they will call him America's first serial killer. That's, that's a pretty good marketing term. It's a really compelling story. It's been very uh, compellingly written up in books that are really page turners, but not necessarily entirely accurate. If you read the uh, end notes in some of these books, they'll make it pretty clear which parts they're just making up. <laughs> and really, this is a result of uh, picking out all the best lines from tabloids and pulps, which are really what people remember. You know, years after a case uh, fades away, it's something I do see over and over again that even after a case has been explained away, after something has been debunked, people will forget about it for a while. Then when it comes back into the public consciousness, people not only forget that it was ever debunked, but also it's like added a whole other layers of uh, new elements to it. So what do people misunderstand about H.H. H. Holmes? And, and I'll start by saying, I think if you live in Chicago, the story you have in your mind is probably mostly from reading The Devil in the White City, Right, right. right. Well, okay. the number one misconception is that he ever operated a hotel. He did have a building on 63rd Street. It was retail on the first floor, uh, apartments on the second. He added a third floor that he said was going to be a hotel space, but it was never completed or habitable or open for business. He never took out any advertisements for it. It was never listed among World's Fair hotels. It was uh, that third floor was never furnished. And I don't think he ever really intended for it to be. He had figured out he was a swindler first and foremost. And he had figured out early on he could probably make a lot more money pretending to operate a hotel than he could by actually operating operating one. By adding this third floor, he was able to go to insurers and investors and suppliers and get them to sell him a whole bunch of stuff on credit that he would turn around and sell for cash. Uh, he had investors giving him thousands of dollars. He had insurance companies giving him big policies on the place, which strangely enough caught fire that summer, <laughs> though the insurance companies were not fooled for one second. <laughs> so would it be fair to say that he was just kind of a petty criminal first and, you know, sort of later moved into more serious crimes? Pretty much. His uh, one true love was buying stuff on credit and then not paying for it. He got in a <laughs> lot of trouble over this. He got, I, mean, I found, about 60, I found about 60 lawsuits in the legal archives related to that sort of thing. Mostly related to that sort of thing or not paying back loans, uh, various mechanic liens being put on the building. But you know, there were cases where he got in over his head and the easiest thing to do was just kill people to get rid of them. And he did kill. It wasn't any 200 people or anything. It was more like nine or 10. <laughs> a more reasonable that's number, still right? Plenty. So, that's still That's still a lot so of people to kill. Nine or 10 people in total or nine or 10 people that he has some outstanding debts to. And I, I admit I am an H.H. Holmes uh, neophyte. Okay. It was uh, nine or 10 people were a couple of women that he had gotten pregnant a couple of people that he just needed out of the way, a business partner and a few of the business partners, kids who knew too much. Okay. Uh, only one of them could ever be described really as someone who would come to Chicago for the World's Fair. And that was the sister of one of the other victims that he had some kind of an affair with going at the time. So is it is it fair to conclude that he sort of killed people pragmatically? Yeah, it was always for a reason. It wasn't just because he got a kick out of it. Okay, so it was just more of a convenience sort of thing. Like, I got this lady pregnant. That's a problem for me. Right. 
You know, it's entirely possible, too. He did have some training as a doctor, but he wasn't in practice as one. And a couple of his professors said that they only graduated him out of pity. So it might have been that he was uh, he said he well, he was fairly consistent in saying the two of them died during abortions. And it might have just been an accident. He might have just uh, been trying to perform one regularly. And it was a dangerous operation back then. And he wasn't very skilled at it. When wow. did people start to suspect that he was a serial killer or a systematic killer? Initially, when he was first arrested, he was arrested on suspicion of having faked his best friend's death. But people started whispering at the time, you know, some other people have disappeared out of that uh, who were dating that guy or people who were hanging around the building I haven't seen around in a while. And for a while, they were accusing him of having killed pretty much anybody they hadn't seen in a couple of weeks. Most of them turned out to be alive and well and living in Omaha or something. The stories got pretty wild. One woman even like walked into the local post office, banged her fist on the desk, said, I want to issue a statement. I have never been murdered, not by A.J. Holmes, <laughs> not by anybody else. Well, that's funny. So I watched, I, and I think you watched too, Maggie, the American Ripper series that you were on. Yes. <laughs> and there's a sort of a pervasive internet rumor that H.H. Holmes probably also was Jack the Ripper. Can you tell us about that? That's uh, something that's come up fairly recently, the idea that, well, he existed at the same time as Jack the Ripper, at least the urban legend version, that seems to that would have been the kind of killing that he did. Really, that wasn't his style. Just berserker killings of people that he wouldn't have even known is not something that I would really connect with them. And I've got all the paperwork showing that Holmes was in Chicago during the time of the Ripper murders. But some people will look at it and say, well, that's all fake, or maybe he was replaced by a double, or maybe the dates are all wrong on it or something. Really, it would be a major stretch. The, the best evidence they found really is people have found the name Holmes on passenger logs. But it was a really common name. There, were, there was uh, two or three H.H. Holmeses just operating around Chicago at the time. Wow, that's so interesting. I mean, it seems far-fetched, right? I would, I would say it seems very far-fetched that Holmes could have had. I don't, as near as I can determine, he never really went overseas. Okay. And where was he born? Is he Was he a Chicago native? He was born in New Hampshire. Okay. In the property now, I understand. Actually, I've been down there. It's a, it's a post office in sort of an empty lot, right? Yeah, most of it. Well, there's the post office, and then there's like the yard space and the alley around the post office. Most of it would have been in the a little bit of green space and the alley just to the left of the post office. It would have overlapped about four or five feet with the post office. I'd just be curious, as again, a neophyte, was he convicted of these murders while he was right. still alive? Did this come to light after his death? How were these murders solved? Well, he was he was convicted of one murder, just the murder of his uh, friend, Benjamin Peitzel, the one he had initially been suspected of faking the guy's death for the insurance money. There were other murders he was strongly suspected of at the time. And if by some coincidence he had gotten acquitted of that one murder, he would have just been extradited to some of these other places. But they only ever put him on trial for the one. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania only had the jurisdiction over the one guy who'd been killed in Philadelphia. Uh, so he was convicted and hanged for that one. It was uh, right before part of what helped the legend grow was uh, newspapers paid him big bucks for a big uh, explosive confession. So shortly before the execution, he wrote a confession saying that he had killed 27 people. But of those, about half a dozen were still alive. So and several others seem to have been fictional characters. So his <laughs> confession would be almost the equivalent of the celebrity tell-all biography or something along right, well, those lines. 
read as those. Those are usually much more readable. <laughs> he wasn't the most uh, he wasn't the most engaging writer, we should say. And you put his number at nine or, or, or ten, but uh, I would say there... nine. Or, there's nine that we can generally agree on, and a couple of maybes beyond that. Okay, so perhaps all the way up into the teens, but nine for sure. Uh, yeah, nine. I would say more or less for sure. So why do you think the H.H. Holmes story is so fascinating to people? Well, even at the time, there was something about it that tickled people's imagination. This uh, little no-account-looking guy had been responsible for all of these disappearances and all of this audacious swindling. And plus, by the time they broke into the building to investigate, Holmes had been out of the place for a couple of years. But the police walked around thinking, oh, we found a rope. Maybe he was hanging people. Or we found this bench. Perhaps it was a dissection table. Like Anything they could find, they could think of a possible murder case for it. And it just sort of captured people's imaginations, at least for a couple of weeks. After a couple of weeks, when they didn't find anything really concrete, a lot of people started saying, you know what, maybe this has just gotten out of hand. But then by the time the story got back into public consciousness, it was, you know what, they found torture equipment down in the basement. Nobody reported that at the time. It's funny because I think that's the idea that we have about it, right? That there were like, it was like a, a murder castle that had all sorts of different rooms with contraptions and there was a hanging room and a torture room and a, you know, right. that's, acid some vat. Of that's, and- some of that's from the 1940s stuff. And some of it was rumored at the time. Like they, they announced, we found the acid tank down in the basement. Tomorrow we'll open it up and find out what's in there. But then when they opened it up, they found there was just like a bucket of petroleum in there, no trace <laughs> of acid or anything. But a lot more papers report that they found the acid pit than that it turned out not to be an acid pit. A lot of it goes back to there was this one article in the New York world that pieced together a bunch of stuff from Chicago papers, plus a bunch of fill-ins from their own imaginations. They were the ones who first said, you know, this was a hotel. Maybe he was luring people here during the World's Fair. And they had this one paragraph about it that was reprinted in just about everything written about Holmes thereafter. Uh, That article traveled around for a while and kind of invented the whole myth as we know it today. And the fact that even a lot of it at the time was just coming up off the top of their heads or just wild speculating, we kind of forget about that stuff. We remember the wildest stuff, not that it got debunked. I appreciate that you did mention a little bit his like relative lack of attraction or the fact that he's not particularly attractive. It's come up a little bit in conversation about um, Dahmer recently. It's pretty topical and within the zeitgeist that part of the reason he probably was able to get away with so many things, Dahmer, was due to the fact that he was attractive and how people may not necessarily like to say that. So it is interesting. Right, right. right. That's been a a topic in Chicago crime for a really long time. Like the the, the cases in the musical Chicago are like tip of the iceberg. You can find article after article in the 20s uh, talking about how the, whether a woman would be convicted of murder or not was directly proportional to how attractive she was. The, the find a grave we're about to do right now, uh, the live stream is a guy who was murdered by his wife. She had poisoned quite a few different husbands. It was a woman named Tilly Klimek. And at the time, there were all these articles saying, well, you know that she's going to get convicted because she's not attractive. She can't flirt with the jurors. She's not wearing any lipstick or makeup. And some of the articles are 
the, many of them were written by women. A lot of the best crime reporters at the time were women. But a lot of them you read to now is like, oh, man, they're actually calling her dumpy in an article. <laughs> oh, that's, <laughs> oh, that's nice. Oh, it's cringeworthy. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of cringing that you do reading old newspapers. But that's not too far from what we still do today when we have jury trials, right? You oh, I'm always sure. hear these stories where it's like Casey Anthony's attorneys made her look like a librarian or Anna Nicole Smith's attorneys where, you know, there, there's a lot of that that we're still doing, right? Well, of, of course. I mean, it's just kind of kind of human nature. They want to try to make people look respectable. If they come in looking like what we would think of as a criminal looking, they're probably more likely to get convicted. Yeah. Adam, what is your favorite sort of unsolved Chicago mystery that you don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of? Oh, there are so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Well, one that I've been researching lately is the murder of a guy named Richard Tesmer, who was an insurance man who was shot in the alley behind his place up in Edgewater. And his widow said that she could identify the woman who did the shooting. She only saw her in the pistol flash. But she said, I, I know I would recognize that smiling face in the blue eyes anywhere. And the police brought in several different suspects, and she positively ID'd most of them as the actual killer. Which makes it a little bit trickier. The story got wild. The one that the police uh, landed on eventually that they decided this is the person, this is the one we can get a conviction on, was a woman named Frances Carrick, who turned out to be what we would now call probably a transgender woman. Uh, she lived as a woman full time, but the prison doctors who examined her said, no, there's no trace of like intersex or anything. This is uh, a male body. And she said, so what? Bring me a razor blade and a shot of gin. I need a shave. <laughs> and she ended up giving great copy to the newspapers. A judge even ruled that a marriage to a guy named Frank was a valid marriage. A psychiatrist said this may be a male frame, but she should be considered a woman. This is all really fairly forward thinking for 1923. But she was acquitted of the murder and police kind of stopped worrying about who killed Richard Tesmer at that point. It's still an unsolved case. Oh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about Graceland Cemetery, which is a favorite spot of mine. It's not far from where I live on Irving Park and Clark. And I know that you just published a book about Graceland Cemetery, yep. and it's just this super cool historic place in Chicago. So tell us about Graceland. Uh, Graceland Cemetery is one of the oldest cemeteries in Chicago, one of the oldest private ones. Uh, burials there started about 1860, and uh, as of now, there's about 175,000 people buried there. And it was actually founded by a guy who was H.H. H. Holmes's possibly his single biggest swindling victim. Uh, Holmes owed the guy about $7,000 that he never paid up. Thomas Barber Bryan was his name. It's uh, generally known as a cemetery where all the great architects want to be buried. But really, there are so many other people besides the architects there. Yeah, I, I know Ernie Banks is up there, right? Yep. Ernie, Ernie Banks is uh, one of the most requested attractions on the tour. I'm sure. What, are, what other things do people want to see up there? Uh, Marshall Field is fairly well known, and he's there. They want to see the, the big names like Potter and Bertha Palmer are there. The names that you recognize from museums and department stores and stuff always come up, but they're not always the best stories. A lot of these businessmen, like Marshall Field was a really dull individual. Nobody could really stand <laughs> the guy. <laughs> Mr. McCormick, who was right by him, was absolutely awful. So were his brothers who are also there. But there's, you know, often with these places, you find uh, a really a mausoleum built for a really dull man, but his daughter set the city on fire and her story mm. is fantastic. In reading the book, I was rather surprised by how 
democratic the cemetery seemed to be in the fact that it was integrated. Mm-hmm. Um, th- they were very specific about banning barriers between different plots. And I was curious, yeah. was it like that from the start or is that an ethos that was taken on as the cemetery grew with age? For the most part, it is from the stars. Uh, I think there were more barriers, uh, more uh, little fences separating lots up for the first uh, 15 or 20 years or so. They kind of fell out of fashion in the 1870s, but they've never kept track of ethnicity in the records there, which can make it a little hard now. We're trying to, if I'm trying to figure out like the demographics of who was buried there in the 1860s, there's not really any way to tell because they never kept track. But if I'm looking up like a prominent black family for the 1860s, there is likely to be a Graceland as anywhere else. How did you decide who you wanted to cover in your book? Well, yeah, there was really, uh, there were like all of the large monuments I knew I would have to at least mention anything that people would see that and think, oh, who's that guy? But then beyond that, it's strictly my own entirely biased opinion of who's the most interesting (laughs) in there. I think any anybody who wrote the book would have picked different people. I don't think any two people would have picked all the same people to feature there. And of course, the book could have been twice as long. I had to keep it to a certain word count. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the development of private cemeteries and how they didn't really exist before the Civil War? Right. Well, they, they started existing. Uh, private cemeteries started about a generation before the Civil War. They wrote they grew up around the same time people got the idea that, hey, we should have parkland, green space in large cities. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, most people who died had been buried in churchyards, the places that got really overcrowded really quickly. Uh, Chicago decided that they would have government burial ground, a city burial ground, but they didn't really look into things like irrigation or drainage. They were kind of poorly thought out. But at the same time, in the late 1850s, early 1860s, places like Graceland Cemetery and Rose Hill started up that people were a little bit suspicious of these cemeteries for profit. They had to think, well, what about when it fills up and there's no more money to be made? Are they still going to be taking care of things? Uh, Are they going to be having fights over who gets all of the prominent burials? And they did have a little bit of fights about who got the most prominent people. So people could be a little bit uh, suspicious of their motives back at the time. So I I hope this isn't a pedestrian thing, but my favorite corner of Graceland is the Pinkerton area because yeah, I and I'd love you to talk a little bit about that. And and it's I think for two reasons. Number one, I have always loved detectives and mysteries and those sorts of things, so Mm -hmm. I you know I'm really drawn to that. But number two, you know I've been at my law firm for almost 17 years, a long time, and I really really like the people I work with, but I'm not. Like, man, I want to be buried next to these people for the rest of my life. So that really just like, it really blows my mind, or not for for the rest of my life, for the rest of eternity, right? That you have this group of people that all got this plot and they're all together still. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's one of my favorite Graceland stories. Oh, sure. Well, Ellen Pinkerton, who started the Pinkerton Detective Agency, initially came to Chicago to work on the Underground Railroad and realized that at the time we had mayors serving one year term. So every year the police department was getting shaken up and just to keep their jobs, they had to be really political. So he started up his own group, the Pinkerton Detective. And it's hard to get really good data about what they were up to, what their stories were, because they had to be kind of secretive. But at the same time, he was a shameless self-promoter. 
And really, as much as a promotion for the company as anything else, there's a whole little plot next to his family plot that was graves for his detectives, some of whom died on the job or died while they were well, died of natural causes while they were working for the agency. And most of the tombs are the, the tombstones that are faded away. We can't really read very many of them. We've got the records. We know who's where. And with a few people, we've been able to find really interesting stories about them. Uh, Joseph Witcher, who's in that plot, was killed by Frank and Jesse James while he was trying to track them down. Um, there's one guy, Timothy Webster, who was hanged by the rebels during the Civil War, who's not even really buried there. His gravestone is just there as an advertisement for the Pinkertons. Um, most notably now, Kate Warren, who was the first woman to work for the Pinkertons and about sometimes listed as even the first woman detective overall. I'm always hesitant to call anybody the first anything. So there's always somebody else with a claim out there. But she was certainly a very early example. I think Emily Blunt's going to be playing her in a movie soon. That's so interesting. I didn't know there was a movie coming out on that. Yeah, there's uh, there's been like children's books and novels coming out about Kate Warren a lot. Not that we really know very much of what she did. A lot of it is not much more than fanfic, really. Yeah. What is your favorite Graceland Cemetery story? Whichever one I'm researching at the time. Like I, I mentioned Johan Hawk earlier. I found out sure. too late to, to put it into the book that his first wife that he killed in Chicago was in a quiet little corner uh, mm-hmm. by a tree in Graceland. It's an unmarked space. You have to really go looking for that one, but she's there. And today, like, uh, you know, like I said, it's in my neighborhood. If I want to get buried at Graceland someday, can I do that? Uh, probably. Uh, spaces <laughs> do come available there. You won't really get your pick of places anymore. But mostly what happens now is they'll uh, remove a road or they'll uh, do some re-landscaping and find a space that hasn't been used or somebody else sell back the remainder of an unused family plot. Um, I can't give you any numbers on what it would cost. Uh, yeah, I, I bet it's not but cheap, there, right? there, there are still burials going on there. Well, Adam, I think we have to leave it there. We're running out of time. We will be right back for our third segment, Stranger Than Legal Fiction. Are you looking to get away to someplace warm and sunny this winter? Join the Chicago Bar Association's CLE Abroad in Mexico. We're headed to Mexico City from March 24th to March 26th with an optional extension trip to beautiful San Miguel Allende from the 27th to the 29th. The trip will include CLE programming for attorneys, as well as tours, cultural experiences, and networking opportunities. Attorneys and their guests are welcome to attend. To learn more and register, visit chicagobar.org backslash Mexico 2024. We hope to see you there. Need a lawyer? Steve? I do. You look like you need a lawyer. The Chicago Bar Association Lawyer Referral Service has been making referrals for over 70 years to attorneys who have been thoroughly screened for experience in over 40 different areas of the law. Call 312-554-2001 or visit us online at www.chicagobar.org backslash LRS. All right, Adam, we are back. Thank you again for joining us today. We're going to end here uh, with our game we play, Stranger Than Legal Fiction. Our audience knows the rules. Maggie and I have both researched a law that is real and a law that is fake. And we are going to read those to you today and quiz you and each other about which one is which. So are you ready? Sure. All right, Maggie, why don't you kick us off? Sure. So I have a Halloween-themed question. Oh, excellent. Um, 
<laughs> just about cool. trick-or-treating. So two of these laws are going to be actually real, and then one is fake. I'm sorry to, to switch up the format, <laughs> but that's what I have. So if you could pin which one of these is fake. So in Chicago, Illinois, it is illegal for a 16-year-old to trick-or-treat. In Bellevue, Illinois, it is illegal for a ninth grader to trick-or-treat. And in Chesapeake, Virginia, it is illegal for a 15-year-old to trick-or-treat. Which of those two are correct and which one is false? Hmm. Well, the fact that you have such specific towns for the latter two uh, make me suspect that those might actually be on the book. So I am going to say that the first one is fake. Trish, what do you think? I'm going to go with the Belleville law because it's weird to measure law in my mind by somebody being in ninth grade. Yeah, by that, I also thought of that. The grade level thing seems like it wouldn't actually That seems be fishy. So I'm going to say the other two are real and the Belleville law is fake. You drop out of eighth grade. You can see <laughs> trick or treating. Exactly right. So, uh, Bellevue, this is a heads up to you guys. You may want to change your, your statute or your ordinance. Bellevue actually does have a law in the books that says that it is illegal for anybody in eighth grade or up to trigger treat. Chesapeake, Ooh. Virginia also has a law on the book that says a person that is over the age of 14 is guilty of a misdemeanor if they trick or treat. And in Chicago, Illinois, we do not have any age specific laws on the books banning trick or treating. So those of us in Chicago, if you want to go out and put your costume on and, and, <laughs> and get the candy, feel free. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know what I'm doing this weekend. There we go. <laughs> I'll be joining you, Trish. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, here I go. So law number one, in Wisconsin, minors can possess and consume alcoholic beverages in bars if they are with their parent, guardian, or spouse. Or number two, in South Carolina, it is illegal for a man to seduce an unmarried woman using a promise to marry her. Well, a breach of promise suits come up all the time. So... I don't know, that might not still be on the books anymore. I feel like the Rittenhouse thing came up with the uh, drinking alcohol in bars. I don't know if it was uh, like a minor or the age of 16, but I would have to say that I guess, you know, I can think of examples of either of those, but South Carolina specific, I don't know of any breach of promise suits. So uh, let's, I'll say the South Carolina one is fake. Okay, Maggie? That's a tough one. Both of those actually sound like real laws to me. Um, I guess <laughs> I would have to go to maybe the second one might be a little bit too specific. I agree with Adam. Okay, so you're both right. In South Carolina, it used to be illegal for a man to seduce a woman by promising her that he would marry her. That was repealed just a few years ago in 2016. In Wisconsin, you can still drink in a bar or restaurant or other venue if as a minor, right? And I, I do not think there's a bottom end on that age, as long as you are with a parent, a guardian, or creepy, a spouse. So um, in Wisconsin, uh, you can take your kids to bars and let them drink. It is, I will say, up to the establishment whether or not they want to allow it, though. So right. that is our show today. Adam, thank you so much for coming. This is so interesting. We love Chicago history. And when that H.H. Holmes Hulu series comes out, we want to have you back, okay? Oh, sure. Yeah. Excellent. I want to thank my co-host Maggie and our executive producer, Jen Byrne. 
And of course, everyone at the Legal Talk Network family, they are really the very best in the business and we love working with them. Uh, Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, or episode ideas on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at CBA at the bar, all one word, or you can email us. Please don't forget to rate us and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you download your podcast. It always helps us get the word out. And until next time, for everyone at the Chicago Bar Association, thank you for joining us, and we will see you soon at the bar.